What it do, fam? It has been a minute since I've recorded a podcast. Um, probably over almost two months now. Uh, as most of you know, I'd been preparing to do ayahuasca, and then I went and I drank ayahuasca, and then came back and spent the last two weeks trying to articulate what the fuck I experienced on ayahuasca. Um, here's a trip report. Here is the best that I could do to try to articulate the ineffable. Um, easily one of the most personal things I've ever shared. But that's what I'm here to do with you. Um, I deeply hope that this can serve as inspiration for you to share your stories when you go through something challenging. Because as humans, we feed on stories, we need stories. And the stories of your hardest moments in your life are some of the most potent medicines that you can share with other people. An interesting thing about stories that is very useful to understand is when you give someone advice on anything, there's a slight undercurrent that implies they are wrong, you are right, and there's often resistance. When you tell a story, the way that our psyches process stories, we intuitively put ourselves in the position of the protagonist and whatever the protagonist learns in the story, we absorb it like we just learned it. So instead of telling someone, you know, stop eating X, you can tell them a story about a time you've struggled with trying to change how you eat. And whatever you learned from that struggle, they unconsciously absorb it. And that's why stories are always more powerful than statistics, than any type of direct argumentation or advice. So stories are medicine, and I hope that this one serves as medicine for y'all. We got a couple of notes when it comes to housekeeping. Um, the podcast is growing up, y'all. I've hired my first contractor ever. Uh, I now have a producer. Um, and we got some big plans. Uh, at some point in the future, we don't know when, but we're going to launch a premium podcast version of this one called The Roots of the Myths That Make Us. And we're still trying to work out exactly what we're going to be offering for that. But it feels like it's going to be a place for me to more intimately do personalized, like uh, ask me anything for you guys. Um, I also have this idea that I've been imagining for like a year now where I set up like a Twitch account and I get high or I microdose and then I put on one of my favorite movies and whoever, you know, watches it with me, I'll just pause it and break down like mythological motifs, symbolisms, what this would mean if it were in a dream. Because I kind of do this to my friends anyways and most of them love it, but I feel like Y'all would love that. But the reason we're doing it is um, I don't want this podcast to become a place where I pimp out 
you guys and I try to sell y'all stamps and socks and shit. I don't want to have to do that, but it, it costs money to make these episodes. And so uh, we're going to create this premium podcast uh, option. It's going to be probably $9 a month. And we're going to use the proceeds from that to pay this dude's motherfucking salary and um, eventually move to video and just make this more professional, more real. So be on the lookout for that. I am also in the process of creating a dream interpretation course. And I've started a weekly newsletter that will be specifically me sharing dreams from my life, interpreting them, and um, kind of teaching whatever heuristics or rules of thumb applied to that dream interpretation. And I'm going to use that to make the dream course. And so if you want to get a part of that, it's called the Dream Dancing Series. And you can check it out um, on my link tree on my Instagram bio. Um, what else? You know, as always, if you want to keep up with whatever the fuck is going on in my life, check out the newsletter. It's at the website, aragazi.com. And if you find that this is helping, I invite you to share it. And also, if you haven't checked out my most recent podcast on trauma called What is Trauma? I deeply recommend that. You guys are going to be hearing me interview quite a few experts on trauma and trauma healing this coming year because it's very alive for me. And I think that that is it. So without further ado, what is to come is my most recent ayahuasca trip report. I love y'all. Thank y'all for being patient with me. And I'm really excited for the things that I feel are coming for 2021. Love, love. Introduction. To put words to an experience that was in fact ineffable at the time, and then to shape them into sentences and then a story is inevitably to do it a kind of violence, but the alternative is literally unthinkable. Michael Pollan, How to Change Your Mind. The Killing of a Sacred Deer. For the last decade, the home I returned to after having my ego dissolved by psychedelics has always been the keyboard. Psychedelics bring the ego to its knees with remembering and the keyboard is where I put my ego back together. Each time, like the gold liquid of Kintsugi, I'm a little lighter, a little more humble, a little more curious, and a little more sensitive to the divine. At the convergence of the psychedelic experience and the keyboard, I first met my Dharma. As I sat down to write that first trip report over a decade ago, I could feel this was the first time in my life that I'd consciously chose to make art with the intention to be as honest as my body knew how, to be vulnerable, and that the reason I was doing it was because I hoped to help someone that I couldn't see and someone that I maybe would never know. For the last decade, I've danced this dharma. Each time I sit at the mouth of eternity, feel my ego melt off the invincible frame of awareness, I do my best to bring home bits of sand from the beyond. At first, 
and youthful naivety, I thought that I was bringing home artifacts, usable, real, scientifically valid pieces of another world. As experiences humbled and tempered me, I began to believe that I was bringing home a type of ore, sometimes gold, sometimes lead, both of which would be up to the interpreter to determine its value, usefulness, and beauty. But my fifth, sixth, and seventh, and eighth dance with ayahuasca has shown me that my stories of the psychedelic experience are a kind of violence. The psychedelic experience is not a sunken ship I bring artifacts from. It is not a landscape I ore precious stones from. The psychedelic experience is a sacred deer that I hunt and kill. Language is my knife, and the stories that I tell are the bits of meat that I bring home. My ayahuasca experience cannot be captured in stories, but my art, my sacred craft, is articulation. And so, with the knowing that I am killing something sacred in order to make medicine, because our stories are our medicine, I draw my knife, I give thanks to Mother Earth and Father Time, and I kill the sacred deer with loving hands in order to bring home a story. Nothing I share here is the deer. I cannot bring home her breath or her heartbeat. I cannot bring home the grace of her movements or the beauty that her living essence inspired in me. Those are gifts that only the one who hunts can experience but I come back with her heart and her meat so that you can eat. I hope this meat nourishes some part of you, and I hope it inspires you to make medicine from whatever adventures that you take into the depths of the human condition. Because we all need stories. Because we all live on stories. Setting the stage. On November 8th, 2019, I finished my first 10-day retreat at Soltara Healing Center. I had drank ayahuasca four times. People tend to exaggerate, but feel me when I share this next sentence and know my sincerity. It was the most transformative experience of my life. Before this experience, I was a boy who knew how to pretend to be a man. After this experience, I became a man who knew he had a boy inside him. It was the initiation rite that my psyche had been seeking for the last 20 years from sports, college, relationships, all other psychedelics, workouts, and books. I finally felt I had stepped out of adolescence and into adulthood. On that last night, in the last moments before my crowning initiation ended, Ayahuasca gave me a final message. We have been kind to you, boy, for you had done the work to meet us. And we have given you gifts. And now you must return in a year to be judged for how you used these gifts. The gift ayahuasca gave me was my power. After my first four dances with her, I knew in the matrices of my bones, in the sinew of the tendons that bind these bones together, in the blood that feeds my muscles and the lungs that fill my breast, I am both a king and a boy. I am both that which faces the void with eyes that do not flinch, and I am also that which lies, hides, cries, cowers, runs, laughs, creates, and plays. The challenge of 2020 was to use this new connection to my king to raise my inner boy, 
to take responsibility for being the Mufasa to my Simba, for teaching him, loving him, seeing him, protecting him, and nurturing him. And I had a hard year. I fell in love with my best friend. We tried dating, and while the depths of the beauty were levels I had never known, it didn't work. And the way it didn't work was painful. In hindsight, I can see that this was the ultimate training ground for my inner king to show up for my inner boy. And boy, (laughs) my boy got hurt repeatedly. In no previous year of my adult life have I cried as much as I cried this past year. I gave tears to the shower, at altars, on shoulders, to cell phone screens, to trees, to rivers, and the sky. I gave silent cries soft cries, sobbing cries, and a few that sound and look like and feel like a dying animal, a kind of guttural, vocal cord tearing cry that you know is not yours. It is your mother's and your father's and their mother's and their father's. It is a cry that reaches back into the pain of your ancestors. And for a brief moment, you become the vessel through which your ancestors can feel, release, and reprieve as their pain gushes out of you. I had a few cries like that this year. A quote from Gabor Mate comes to mind. The problem is not that the truth is harsh, but that the liberation from ignorance that the truth offers is as painful as being born. I was being liberated by the truth that caused these cries. And I did my best to care for my little boy, to nurture him, love him, and also to call him forward when he was afraid or wounded or felt defeated. And so, as the countdown of my return dropped from four weeks to three weeks, then to two, and finally to one, I began to feel inadequate. I felt like I didn't do as good of a job as I knew I could have in Mufasa in my Simba. I was afraid to meet ayahuasca again. I was afraid to be judged. So with the king and the boy holding hands, with the pain and the beauty of the relationship held honestly in my heart, and with my fear of being judged on my brow, tilting as my crown of worry, I created my intention for the second dance with Mother Ayahuasca. Help me heal what needs to be healed. Please reveal what needs to be revealed and love whatever needs to be loved to help me most beautifully manifest my dharma for my highest good and for the highest good of all conscious life. And so, with the stage set and the intention offered, here is the story of her response. Night Zero, A Vision and a Dream After two days of travel, leaving behind the weird world I found myself in, only one year after my coming-of-age initiation with ayahuasca, with all the masks, the fear of an invisible killer, the rise of near-schizophrenic political and pseudo-spiritual story-making infecting the zeitgeist, I stepped into a long and elaborate visualization before going to bed on the eve of my first night of drinking. The Kingdom Vision Last year after doing ayahuasca, as I integrated through a daily journaling practice, an inner kingdom began to organically grow into my imagination that represented all the different parts inside of me and the internal landscape that they inhabited. 
This is about to be dramatic, but this is my truth. First, there is a throne room. It has the aesthetic of the throne room from Game of Thrones at King's Landing. There are high ceilings, stone-laden walls and floor, with trappings of red and gold, warmed by firelight. Behind the throne rises a massive cathedral-like window, and opposite the throne is a huge opening that allows for a view of the land beyond the castle. On the throne sits the archetype of my king. Perched on his shoulder is a white owl, the totem animal for my inner archetypical magician. To his right and left stand a brown stag with golden antlers, and on the left, a lion. These are the two totems that represent my king energy. Nestled on the floor in front of the king, sleeping is my inner boy, who I call Soul. Wrapped around him is a blue silver wolf and a night black dog. The wolf is Fenrir. This is the boy's insatiable hunger to learn and to dominate. And the black dog, who I call Rufus, represents my fear, the part of me that is constantly scanning for possible threat and who barks goofily at shadows and the wind. They feel like the primary guardians of my inner boy. To the left stands my inner warrior, Samson. He is a kind of Dorthraki-looking man who holds a flaming sword. When he is in his sacred expression, he is the boundary enforcer, the part that sits in the ice bath for four minutes, that pushes through the last set of a workout, and is the part that expresses clean anger. In his shadow expression, he is the destroyer of relationships, the foolish competitor, and the spokesperson of my arrogance. To my king's right is my magician. I haven't discovered his name yet, and I don't know what he looks like. He is hooded and dressed like a Celtic druid, but has an air of Egyptian magic to him. I don't know him well, yet, and a part of my intention for 2021 is to get to know him better. And dancing before this little band of archetypes is my inner lover, a celestial-feeling woman in a golden dress that I call Evie. And she's dancing. She is always dancing. She is the part of me that sees God in everything, that brings me to tears at sunsets and from poetry. She is the part of me that loves deeply the surrender of a woman's body and also the surrender of my ego to the psychedelic experience. She is my intuition, my passion, and my connection to nature. Out beyond the window is a great grassy plain. On the left is a huge Gothic cathedral with hints of purple in the stone and in the window pane. This represents my company, Cathedra. To the far right is a road that leads to the horizon, and this is the path that I take when I travel out beyond my inner world and step into the shared hallucination that we call reality. And in the middle of this field, between Cathedra and the path out, sits the representation of my soul. In the center of my inner landscape breathes a huge circular garden labyrinth. In the center of the labyrinth is a grand, gold-tinted oak tree that I call Yggdrasil. And wrapped around the labyrinth is a massive snake that represents ayahuasca. As I begin visualizing all of this, I see the snake begin to stir. The million-scaled creature slowly awakens and bristles. And this begins to create a low, powerful hum that can be heard from the throne room and felt through the concrete thus beckons the call of ayahuasca. 
I see my king stand, take off his crown and clothing, and begin to walk out of the castle towards the labyrinth. All my parts are at the window, and they bear witness as the king steps over the slithering, awakened snake and into the darkness of the labyrinth. As I see my king walk into the labyrinth, I say a prayer. I ask my psyche to please deliver me a dream to help me understand what kind of energy to bring to my second week dancing with Mother Ayahuasca. My prayer was answered. The Stag Dream. I'm walking along a country road in what feels like a Wisconsin farmland. A truck driver drives by me and he says something about the woman that I'm dating in the dream. The woman in the dream felt like it was represented by my primary high school relationship. What he says feels like a superficial judgment of her, like her height or appearance is wrong. And I feel the judgment not affect me because it feels shallow. The overall feeling was not feeling moved or swayed by the superficial judgment of another. The scene changes and I'm approaching a hill in that same Wisconsin landscape and atop it is a beautiful and large tree that is backlit by the sun. And to the right of the tree, also backlit, is a strong, powerful looking stag. The most prominent image from the dream was seeing the stag backlit by the tree and the sun. As the stag sees me, it lowers its antlers and charges me. Right before it is about to impale me, I grab its antlers and notice how much stronger I am than it. As it squirms in my powerful hands, I feel the knowing that I am supposed to kill the stag. I do so with stillness and peace and steady force, and I slowly and knowingly push its antlers into its neck and kill it. I wake from this dream feeling power and peace, the knowing is that my task this week is to sacrifice the stag in me. Night one, the myth maker. The mission of the initiated is to describe the ineffable, Don Howard. My first night back in the Maloka at Soltara feels eerie. Some part of me feels like this past year was a dream and I'm awake again in the real world in this Maloka, in the same spot I sat last year, preparing to drink for the first time. To give some context, each night we begin the ceremony at 7.30 p.m. The structure that we drink ayahuasca in is called a Maloka. It is an ancient architectural technology built specifically for journeying with ayahuasca. It is kind of shaped like a big yurt. The beds of the drinkers line the circular walls like the spokes of a wheel, and in the center, like the captain's seats of an interdimensional spacecraft, sit four beds. Two are for the male and female shamans, and two are for the male and female facilitators. By candlelight, the shamans begin to smoke mapacho after mapacho, which is a sacred tobacco that they believe helped them connect to the plant intelligence of ayahuasca. Smoke begins to fill the room and they begin to whisper prayers in the form of song into the bottles of ayahuasca. Once the bottles are ready, one by one we are called to the center to drink the dark red, slightly sweet, but mostly bitter brew. This first night, my intention was simply to reconnect to ayahuasca, to feel her, to hear her and to receive her. I wouldn't start asking things from a close friend I hadn't seen in a year without asking her how she has been, 
so I wasn't going to do that to ayahuasca. I drank my first full cup and went back to my bed. Important note, each night, the actual experience of the night was not orderly or linear. The parts that I share are fragments of a mosaic. A night with ayahuasca is a dance with an entity, and what I share are the bits of flesh that she allowed me to take from her to bring to you. A new gift, the soft gaze. As I sat in the darkness, waiting, the first sensation that I felt was this uncanny, other intelligence forcing the muscles in my face to relax, particularly around my eyes. I felt like I was being forced to defocus, and I knew that this was ayahuasca. As I felt this energy control the muscles in my face, I remembered what I had read about the quote, soft gaze, being a technique, neophytes, from the Eleusinian mysteries. And they were taught that in order to access the realm of gods, they had to learn how to see like this. The felt teaching of ayahuasca here was that when we relax the muscles around our eyes, when we defocus the conscious mind, this allows the contents of the unconscious mind to arise into awareness. Basically, it felt like she was showing me how to have visions. I soon asked to drink a second cup, and I went deep. The Return of the King After drinking my second cup, I went to the bathroom because I knew that I hadn't really started to feel the effects of the first cup, and once that second cup started to hit me, I wouldn't be able to walk to the bathroom for the rest of the ceremony. And as I sat on the toilet and tried to shit something that wasn't there, I had the instantaneous download that now was going to be when ayahuasca was going to judge me. And it was hilarious. This moment was the moment that I had been fearing for months, and it only lasted a few seconds. It was incredibly gentle, and it showed me the single action that I did this year that was knowingly a transgression against my intuition. The tone of this teaching felt like a mother reminding her son to grab his book bag before going to school. I was only an hour into my first night, and I'm sitting on a toilet in the jungle, jaw-dropped, giggling, stupefied at the whimsical intelligence of this plant. The genius of what she had done by offering me this dramatic feeling declaration last year was that it got me to judge myself. She didn't judge me. I'm almost ashamed to admit it because it sounds unreal, but I normally don't experience an inner judge that is mean or harsh or destructive. That aspect of my psyche tends to feel like a dog trainer trying to train a goofy but well-intentioned dog. And my ego feels like the dog. These last 40 days or so before coming and drinking ayahuasca, anticipating the fear of being judged, allowed me, for the first time in a decade, to feel a cruel inner judge. I could see clearly how this was to teach me and to remind me what it feels like so that I am better able to meet others where they're at in their relationship to this inner voice and to thus enable me to be a better teacher and a helper. With a little grin and wobbly feet, I make it back to my mat and I begin to melt into another dimension. Remembering my gifts. Each of the first three nights, as the medicine comes on, there is a transition moment that most people call ego death. 
The truth of my personal experience is that this place always feels more like an ego melting or an ego dissolving. It feels like dying only if you try to stop it and you can't stop it. But if you allow it, it becomes a fascinating witnessing. As your ego melts, something still is. And this ising gets to witness ineffable visions, sensations, emotions, and thought patterns. This is the moment Eric dissolves. I leave the ordered world my ego simulates to help my body survive on this planet. And I enter into the non-ordinary world of visions. And I was reminded of the gifts that I had acquired last year from ayahuasca. As she ate Eric, awareness remembered. The first gift, the king's eyes. The beauty of life-threatening situations is they reveal your deeper nature to yourself. For most of my life, I've had this odd ego story that I'm weak or cowardly. But whenever I have been in a life-threatening situation, I consistently show myself that this is not true. I show up, I take responsibility, I protect the people I love, and I solve what needs to be solved. As my ego melted into the ayahuasca space, I feel my ego wanting to shriek and sprint out of the maloka into the darkness of the jungle. I feel this every time DMT starts to eat me. But I feel another part of me stay completely still, who bears unflinching witness to whatever arises, ecstatic or crushing. In my characteristically dramatic way, I call this gift the king's eyes. It is this unshakable resolve to look at anything that arises in the psychedelic space. Any image, any thought, any emotion, no matter how painful, I will not look away. Often I am sitting up, eyes open, witnessing some truth and tears are streaming down my face. And I know in my core that I have the ability to witness and to hold anything that arises in the psychedelic space. Eric forgets and ayahuasca reminds me. The second gift, center point stillness. The second gift I call center point stillness. Whenever my mind begins to wander off into some kind of story that would either inflate the ego or begins to feed a negative emotion in the psychedelic space that would deflate the ego, I have the ability to, at a breath's notice, bring myself back to a center point of stillness. This has served me tremendously in the ayahuasca space, and it is a tool that I've honed through my meditation practice and through my writing practice. And to be frank, I could feel that I was rusty this year compared to last year because my meditation habit had not been honed in the same way that it had been last year. And this feeling, and feeling how helpful it is in the psychedelic experience, is inspiring me to really step back into that habit in 2021. We all have this ability, if we choose the responsibility that comes with claiming it, to guide our thoughts at any moment. We have sovereignty over what stories we weave. Personally, Vipassana meditation and the cultivation of any artistic practice are the most powerful ways I have found to hone this innate gift of consciousness. The third gift, dream vision. This last one is my favorite one. 
One of the most fascinating aspects of dancing with ayahuasca is to feel how synchronistically this space mirrors the natures of dreams. I have spent the last decade learning how to understand dreams, which feels like they teach me directly the nature of the psyche. And this hard-earned skill allows me to navigate the psychedelic landscape of ayahuasca intuitively. Almost every vision, and at what first appears random, sensation reveals its meaning to me nearly instantaneously, and I almost never feel confused by what is happening. This feeling feeds the bursting passion in me to continue to learn and teach all that I know about the nature of dreams, and to help people learn how to communicate with the godlike force inside them that sends them this life-affirming advice each night in the form of dreams. As ayahuasca gracefully allowed me to get my bearings and to feel a sense of confidence in understanding her, then she began to teach me. Ego Lessons one of the major themes of the week were lessons for my ego. Since my overall intention was to learn anything that will help with the manifestation of my dharma, naturally my ego is going to have to learn how to walk with greater power. One of the hardest truths for my ego to accept is that I know I am going to grow in influence and fame and success. There is a part of me that feels guilty at what I know is my destiny if I continue to show up to my dharma. And it's because I fear the pitfalls of ego that success will bring. My mentor once said to me, with an intensity and directness that cut to my core, you will have to learn to walk the path of power. And some of those lessons arose this night. The first major lesson was realizing how I had resistance to one of the people drinking who is a fan of my work. He's absorbed a lot of my lessons and teachings, and I can see he has a lot of potential. He drank a second cup before I did on the first night, and I could feel ayahuasca show me my resistance to him. I felt jealousy and judgment. I could feel that I didn't really want to interact with him, that seeing my medicine in him annoyed me and that I didn't want to be upstaged by him. And this brought me deeply into a profound appreciation for my mentor. So much of my current life, the opportunities, the connections, the fame, the money, the personal transformations, they are because he has allowed me to blossom beside him. He has never allowed my bigness to impact how he supports me. I was brought to tears feeling into my gratitude for him, and I also felt the weight of the truth that I do not yet have this level of grace. My resistance to a young man who loves me, who has been transformed and guided by my work, threatened and triggered my ego, and I realized that I still had a tremendous amount of work to do in this regard. And I have shame admitting this, that this arose in me, but it is the truth, and I knew that it was a lesson that I needed to look at. If I am going to walk my dharma with grace and truly be of service to the collective good, I will have to learn to let those around me who follow me be great. Ego check number one, seen, heard, felt. Another lesson that arose was hearing a drinker let out dark energy. He released this long, low, dark growl that rippled through the space. The energy of that sound instantly 
started manifesting visions of men embodying evil intent. Robbers, rapists, murderers, and people who genuinely seek to exploit and harm others began to fill my visionary space. I understood that in order for me to be a fully realized man, I am called to learn combat arts, how to use a gun, to know how to kill an animal or a man if it needs to be done, and how to connect to that warrior aspect of myself. There is a quote from Jordan Peterson that I think of often. A weak man is not a virtuous man. A virtuous man is a man capable of being a monster and chooses not to be. I know that I will be a public figure, and I know that I want a family. And a part of me being the type of husband and father I aspire to be is to be capable of protecting them from the very real evil that lives in the world. And I could feel that I am not yet that capable. Ego check number two, seen, heard, felt. A third lesson was feeling into my ego's hurt and pain around my ex-partner this year sleeping with her ex while we were together. As a result of this, my ego is hypervigilant of possible, quote, sexual threat to my mate, and that this is something that will need attention and healing. Feeling into my relationship with this woman brought visions of King Arthur and his wife, Guinevere. As the myth goes, she cheated on him with Sir Lancelot, the best friend of the king and the greatest knight of the round table, and this act of betrayal left the king sick and wounded. I felt into this pain in me, and I saw a vision of a little river of mud flowing out of my heart and dissolving into the energy of the maloka. I gently cried as this energy trickled beautifully out of me. To call in the kind of sacred union that I desire, this wound will need more cleaning and tending and healing. Ego check number three, seen, heard, felt. And this next lesson is the biggest lesson from night one. At the peak of my metabolization of the second cup of ayahuasca that I drank the first night, I began experiencing what people call the little doctors. Ayahuasca has an incredible aspect of its healing properties where, almost without fail, the drinker will experience what feels like hundreds or thousands of little hands healing their physical and energetic body. It is an odd sensation, but the felt experience is that some other force that does not feel like you is now inside of you and it's examining you with loving intent and then it begins to work and heal parts of your body. I began to feel them working on me. I felt something massaging my lower back and correcting my posture and I felt it begin to rise from my core, from the base of my pelvis, up and through my spine. As the energy rose, I began to see this blossoming vision overtake my entire field of awareness. What looked like neon, prismatic, rainbowic geometric pipes and tubing began to blossom up from the bottom of my vision and grow towards the top. The piping moved and grew as if it were a plant. And all of this was not static. It was pulsating, three-dimensional, and was coupled with the somatic feeling that I was being worked on by angels or gods or little energetic dwarves. It was absolutely awe-inducing. At some point, in the midst of this awe, it felt like ayahuasca forced me to think 
what if I'm making all of this? And before I could finish the thought, the entire vision vanished and I was back in the darkness of the Maloka and I could feel the presence of ayahuasca, almost like a huge floating organic mass in the middle of the room, finally reveal herself to me directly. She didn't use language, but if I tried to translate what her energetic felt sense was like, it would be something like this. Yes, you created this vision. You humans make up your stories and you are free to make up whatever stories you want. And I will still heal you. My healing will happen regardless of the stories you tell. I love you and you're so goofy. This made me laugh and cry at the same time. Her energy felt grandmotherly and loving, but it also felt like there's no room or time for your bullshit, boy. This experience, specifically the moment I had my skeptical thought and the entire symphony of light and sensation and awe disappeared, felt like my meeting the wizard of Oz moment with ayahuasca. And it is the core of my first night's experience. My craft is articulation. My medium is story and my disposition is dramatic. This teaching from ayahuasca was a powerful lesson for me to chew on. Our stories are not the experience. The map is not the territory. Tell your stories, little Eric, but do it with a light hand and a slight grin. The highlight of the night, the legend of Teo. The way these ceremonies unfold, the shamans, a married couple who have a shared 50 years experience with the medicine. They start at opposite sides of the maloka and they each sing an individual song to each person who drank. Teo is the male shaman. And last year, on the last night, I felt him kill me. As he sang his sacred medicine songs, what they call Ikaros, I saw the vision of an infinite line of shamans materialize behind him creating a long chain. And as his song intensified, this tube turned into the long body of a dragon and Teo became its mouth. His song began to feel like fire and I felt my flesh melting off my bones. A part of me thought, I'm dying. And in response to that voice, another part said, I cannot die. That night, in that moment, I felt my soul stare directly into his fire and I felt my ego die. He is the force that transformed me from a boy to a man last year, and I owe him my life. This year, like last year, at the start of each night, he began his circular singing journey at my bed, and so he ends the night at the bed directly to my left. So after all these lessons and visions, I see Teo in the darkness to my left, singing his last song of the night to the final drinker. And I am seized by awe. Before me is a man completely in his dharma. The metaphor that I use to understand dharma is music. And this man literally sings and dances to heal people. He is the living embodiment, the epitome of how I want to live my life metaphorically. I felt, and it felt, like ayahuasca was saying, look, this is it. This is what you are searching for. He is that. Watch, feel, learn. As I felt the flesh and Teo vibrate to produce the infinite intricacies of his healing song, as I watched his face morph and transform to perfectly emanate 
the healing energy that he was channeling. And as I witnessed his body sway in full possession of that which was possessing him, I realized because of COVID, this was the first time that Teo and his wife had the opportunity to live their dharma in almost a year. These are two humans who have given their lives to these ceremonies. And this was the first time that they got to sing their destiny and ceremony this year. And I could feel in my bones how much he missed it, how much he was savoring this moment, how every cell in his body was screaming in ecstasy at being where he was in this present moment, serving his dharma. The feeling overwhelmed me and it produced a vision. I saw myself at the front row of the 1985 AIDS live concert when Queen came out. I felt the energy of 80,000 people behind me screaming and cheering as we all witnessed a human who had completely given his life to his dharma. And for one brief moment, he set himself on artistic fire upon the stage of life for us all to warm our apathetic hearts at. I was fucking losing my mind in admiration and inspiration and ecstasy at the edge of my mat in the darkness in Costa Rica watching Teo feeling this vision. This vision gave way to another vision, which is hilarious to reflect on in hindsight, but it captures the intensity of my emotions in that moment. I saw a colossal monument begin to rise out of the ground. It towered over me and it held the final three championship banners that the Bulls won when Michael Jordan returned to basketball after retiring. I felt that Teo came out of retirement and just won a fucking championship before my eyes in the Maloka. As I see this vision, I'm now laughing quietly in the darkness as I continue to throw my hands in the air and cheer silently into the abyss. I am in a complete frenzy at this point. I could feel my emotions generating sparks of light and energy out of my body into the visionary space. I could see my emotions creating visions. I don't think my body could have held a single atom more of excitement without bursting into fucking stardust. As Teo offered the final note of his last song of that first night, I slowly came back into the room. Once he finished, the entire Maloka fell silent. And then he lets out a long, slow, clearing breath that feels like God itself brought the four winds in to wash the maloka. He slowly stands and walks back to the center to join his wife and the two facilitators. I watch him with the eyes of a son in admiration of a father, a God proud of a man, a peer gripped with respect for a peer and a patient bowing to his healer in gratitude. In that moment, I sat and learned from the presence of a man who has taught me more about Dharma than all the books, all the lectures, and all the conversations I've ever had. As Teo sat down, leaned back, and lit a mapacho, I vowed to him, as a thank you for being one of the most important humans in my life, I will use my gift of storytelling to serve as gratitude. I will tell your myth, the myth of Teo, for the rest of my life. And thus, my first night with Mother Ayahuasca came to a close. Night two, meeting my soul. 
For the second night of ayahuasca, I drank one and a half cups at the beginning. As the darkness swallowed me with the death of the last candle, I began hearing the symphony of insects surrounding us, and I knew the medicine was starting to come on when I heard from other drinkers, their tossing and turning, their vomiting, their yawning and crying. I began to see pulses of light enter my field of vision. I felt the muscles around my eyes relaxing, ah, the soft gaze, and I felt a wave of energy begin to sweep and seep into my nervous system. Like the night before, I am sitting up at the edge of my bed, feeling both my internal world melt into the psychedelic space and watching my external world morph and transform between visions. I feel like Arjuna looking into the true form of Krishna, like Odin hanging from the world tree Yggdrasil, like a mortal being shown the true face of God. It feels like awe and terror simultaneously undulating. Again, most of the night is lost to my conscious memory other than a few magnificent crescendos that I will share below. The journey to my soul. Like a great composer will leave little hints of the notes and chords throughout the first few acts that will make up the symphony's climax later. So too did ayahuasca weave a beautiful tapestry of hints in my first five ceremonies that crescendoed on this sixth night. The first vision I remember being a part of this life-altering moment was recalling again my immense gratitude for my mentor. It is easy for me to fall into the flow of my life, to take for granted all that has transpired in the last three years so that I can envision fully the future that I want to manifest and I can worry about the bullshit of the day. Ayahuasca helped me not only appreciate the painting of the vision that I now get to call my present life, but she made it three-dimensional. She removed the frame and guided my hands to soak in every blessing and miracle and synchronicity that has lit my path like a trail of rose petals. I am drenched in good fortune, and a tremendous amount of the blossoms share a singular root, and this root is my mentor, Aubrey Marcus. He first fed the fire in my soul when I was 19 when I first heard him on the Joe Rogan podcast, episode 127 where the artist formerly known as Chris Marcus had come back from the jungle, now known as Aubrey Marcus. On my first day of working for him, he invited me to sit in on a podcast with the channeler, Paul Selig. Six months later, he asked me to come to Peru to meet his shaman, Don Howard. Two months after that, he had me on his podcast and my life exploded. He has taught me how to step out of my discipline and enjoy deeply the sensorium of the human nervous system consciously. He has taught me how to hold aggression with compassion, how to lead courageously, and how to be of service without giving myself away. He has helped me become the man that I am today. I had a vision of telling him not only how grateful I was, but transmitting the fullness of the energy that I felt now in the words that I would speak to him in the future. Ayahuasca showed me this future and showed me that I was bashful, that there was a slight wavering that I would bring to this moment because I had fear. And I did not want to bring that energy when I told him, thank you. And so with the help of ayahuasca, I co-created a vision. 
I imagined myself looking directly into the eyes of Aubrey's highest self. Before me came a vision of Aubrey as he is when he is fully present, when he is in his full power, and I met his gaze completely to say thank you. And as I did this, I began to feel my body recalibrate. I felt the muscles along my spine straighten, the energy between my eyes align, and the energetic body began to hum. I felt myself growing taller, and something broke through into my awareness for the first time in my life. As I met the gaze of his higher self fully and said thank you, I felt myself meet what felt like my higher self, my soul, for the first time. All my life, I've had a conceptual understanding of my soul. I've been fortunate enough to hear its whispers as intuition and have seen particles of it as dreams. But in the Maloka that night, I felt it. I experienced it. I saw it. I met it. And it felt old. It felt primordial. It felt like a fundamental force of nature. It felt like the archetypical essence of trees. Whatever the energy of Gaia is that grows trees felt like the same essence in me that grew me, that grows me. I felt it in me, above me, around me, behind me, and before me. It felt like a kin of ayahuasca. As this experience scene was unfolding, I sat at the edge of my mat. The energy in the room felt like a hurricane. The shaman's ikaro swirled, people's vomiting, whimpering, crying, screaming, added to the cacophony. My energetic body felt the twisting and ringing of ayahuasca move through it. I felt myself stilled, awe eating me, tears leaving me, but my soul with me and in me. The room began to feel like a metaphor for the trials and tribulations that I know lay before me in my life. The trauma I know I will hold space for. The battles to try to change the institutions that I will attempt to transform. And the guaranteed suffering of the human condition that is destiny to all conscious creatures embedded in time. And I felt this entity standing next to me like a god king whose presence alone conveys you can do this. I felt like Arjuna looking out at the armies that he was destined to fight the day the Bhagavad Gita is set. My ego felt Arjuna's fear, his apprehension at the immensities that laid before him. And my soul felt like Krishna standing beside him. It was one of the greatest moments of my life. Spirited Away Dharma Download this led to a download as to what my dharma is. The newest articulation of that dharma came to me that night, and it is to help people remember the name of their souls. I knew that it would only take a single moment of experiencing this feeling that I was now feeling for any individual to begin to live their life heroically, to face what they fear, to claim the destiny before them, to live their one true authentic life fully. And the goal of all that I do with this website, the blog, this podcast, the courses, the future books, it's to help people connect to this feeling. And this led me to seeing a vision from the movie Spirited Away. The protagonist is a little girl 
who steps into an alternate dimension, and she is guided by a young man. The young man is magical, but he is also a slave to an old witch. Trials and adventures unfold, and at the peak of the magical young man's character arc is when the little girl helps him remember his true name. His true name is the name of a great river in Japan. He is actually the spirit of the river, and the moment that he remembers his true name, he is freed from the curse of the witch. In the ayahuasca space, realizing one's true name was shown to me as seeing one's soul image. My soul image appeared to me as a grand golden oak tree. I then saw a cascading sequence of visions of soul images of different people I know. The first image I saw was of the male facilitator. It was a combination of some kind of oceanic bird and some kind of surfing wave-like creature that is both animal and the fundamental force of moving water. He felt like a powerful water spirit. Next, I connected to my most recent ex's soul image. She was in the maloka with me, and as I looked over at her bed in the undulating darkness, I saw a beautiful sprouting of vines and then magnificent, bursting, blooming roses. The vividness was incredible, and I'll never forget the depths of the reds enfolded in those flowers. She felt like the essence of the spirit of that which blooms. As fate's giggling would have it, my other ex was in the maloka with me that night, and I saw her soul image as a combination of a tree, a witch, and a crow. Her intelligence, ingenuity, and resourcefulness were captured most fittingly in the image of the intelligent crow. Lastly, I saw my mentor's soul image. It felt like looking into the void of space, like some kind of celestial star being. His eyes were stars and his essence was the space between stars. And something about it had a dragon-like quality. I realize in hindsight that all of our true essences is so much larger than the images that I saw. And these images reflect more about how I see these people than what they truly are. But these are the visions I had. They felt like God gifts and I had to share them. The Gold Mosque Vision There was one vision that was fundamentally different than all the other visions I had my entire 10 days at Soltara. And it came to me in a flash, lasted a literal blink of an eye, and it filled my entire field of vision with bright white and gold light. Like I was looking directly into a blazing sun, yet it was 10.31 p.m. in complete darkness. I don't remember what part of the night it was, compared to the other visions, but at one point I blinked, and for a moment I saw an ecstatic vision that brings goosebumps to my body as I write these words. My point of view was like I was looking up at the ceiling of a magnificent golden mosque, and the entire architecture was alive and living and vibrating. It felt like I was on 5-MeO-DMT. Everything was shaking. And then there was the sound that came with the vision. The hair on my back and neck are standing on end as I say these words. The fucking sound I heard that reflected the living and vibratory nature of the walls and the ceiling. In what felt like God's voice, there was a soul-shaking And as quickly as it came, it left. 
and I was left utterly dumbstruck in the maloka. I still don't know what that was, but it came with a quickness and an intensity like nothing else had come to me the entire week of ayahuasca. Rest day. The boy with his backpack of guilt. After two nights of drinking and getting three to four hours of sleep each night, the third day at Soltara was a rest day. The main gathering that we had on this day was an integration circle where we each shared what our first two nights were like. In my dance with psychedelics, integration circles have revealed themselves as often more powerful, revelatory, and healing than the actual psychedelic experiences are. If the humans gathering are willing to bring their truth, to open their chest and share their bleeding heart and their weeping eyes, these integration circles can change people's lives. The first person to share was about seven people away from me. It normally takes a couple of shares to warm up the timid, and as the sharing stick, which was intelligently a roll of toilet paper, got closer to me, I began to feel the call to cry. Tears slowly began to stream down my face until it was my turn to talk. As I held the roll of toilet paper, I began crying so hard that I could not speak. I hadn't practiced what I was going to say, and I was surprised by what was demanding itself to be spoken. I said, as long as I can remember, I have felt guilty for how good my life is. I can't see the people in the room because my eyes are so full of tears. I can barely breathe through my nose because the snot running down into my mustache is coagulating. And a part of my mind is thinking, wow, this is still where we're at. I shared how since the dawn of my consciousness, I have felt this sometimes subtle, sometimes overt sense of resentment from the people closest to me for how easily my life came to me. I'm finding it hard to explain the depth of this feeling without writing out a childhood in a way that sounds like I'm bragging, but the felt sense came down to this. In the eyes of the people closest to me growing up, at different points in my childhood or adolescence or adulthood, I have felt resentment or outright anger from them in response to the blessings or opportunities or successes in my life. A question I often ask myself is, why is my life so blessed when there is so much suffering in the world? At times I've even considered that I have a weak soul because it chose such an easy life. The deep medicine of the first two nights was to really feel the immensity of my soul and that my soul chose this kind of life to serve as a beacon of what a great man can be and how a great man can navigate power and fame and success with grace and compassion and an unwavering resolve to serve from his place. At some point I stopped crying and I passed along the toilet paper. The Woman Eater Dream. As I went to bed that night, I proceeded to have one of the most disturbing dreams of my life. <sighs> I'm in what feels like the back area of an NBA arena. It also feels like an airport and a huge parking garage. I'm looking for my exit and realize that I have forgotten my bag in a restricted area. I turn around and there is only a single piece of tape saying that this area is off limits and I think to myself, I can easily just walk under that and go grab my bag. So I do, 
and I grab my luggage. The scene then changes, and I'm now in the stands of a coliseum. In the middle of the arena is a large monster. It has the body of a large jungle cat, but orders of magnitude bigger. And it has three hydra-like heads with no faces and no eyes, just a huge mouth with rows of teeth. Also in the middle of the arena is a pavilion, and standing on top of it is a woman. My point of view changes, and I am now seen from the woman's perspective. She watches the monster powerfully and terrifyingly run up next to the pavilion, jump on top of it, and it starts ripping her flesh from her body with its three mouths. I feel her fear, and I feel her pain. My point of view then changes again, and I am now seeing the scene from the monster's point of view. The vision is rageful, and it's only in black and white, and it feels primal. And all it sees is the woman's lower abdomen and her underwear, and the monster starts ripping it apart. He rips apart her genitals, and it turns into a kind of sunken hole that feels like a black hole, and then the scene changes again. It feels like the point of view of the monster falls into the black hole and a new scene arises and it is now in the perspective of what feels like that cliche, older, overweight, aggressive man with high testosterone and a red face. And from his eyes, I am looking down and he is violently fucking a little doll that is dressed like and looks like a little girl. I wake up with an expression of shock and disgust on my face. I have never had a dream like this, and I am disturbed. I didn't know it at the time, but this was the beginning of my third ceremony. Night three, the masculine and the feminine. My intention for the third night was, help me embody what you revealed to me on the second night of drinking. I could feel that my body hadn't really understood the profundity of what was shown to me when I met my soul. I remember how I felt after my last night of ayahuasca last year, and I could feel that I didn't feel that yet. And so my prayer was to have ayahuasca help me embody that. She responded, and I had one of the hardest nights of my life. As I sat before the facilitators, I asked for two cups. One of them looked at me with concern in his eyes, and after I finished drinking my second cup, he put his hand on my leg, and he said, Good luck, Hermano. I remember walking back to my bed thinking how out of character that was for him, and I wondered if he saw or felt something that I couldn't. He clearly did. So there are two parts to this story. There is the story of what was shown to me, which I will share as best I can, but there is also the story of what was happening in my body and what I was feeling. I'm going to first explain what my body was experiencing, and then I'll share the story. My body. As I shared earlier, there is a common part of the ayahuasca experience that is this feeling of the little doctors who lovingly and knowingly work on the body. At times in the past, this aspect of ayahuasca has felt like masseuses, chiropractors, dancers, and lovers. But this night, the best that I can describe the feeling is that they felt like a mixture of a baker pummeling dough, a marine firing a gatling gun, and an EDM DJ aggressively pulsating lasers and lights. 
my energetic body, which really is what scientists call proprioception, which is how you experience the internal energies moving in your body. It felt like it was being pummeled like dough. And my visions were on another level this night. It was like there were three layers. The first layer was waking reality, like being able to see my hand or the bed or people in the maloka. The second layer was seeing the visionary space where dream-like images and movies and energies manifest and dance. But this night had a third layer, and this third layer felt like it was the ineffable oceanic energy dimension that sits behind reality. I've seen this dimension a few times before. It feels like you're looking inside a totally different world. It feels like you're seeing the inner workings of a godlike being. This third dimension would eat into the visionary space. And I saw what looked like the doctors. They looked like a kind of insectoid alien entity. They were moving at a speed that felt disorientingly fast and everything, their bodies and their surroundings were made up of pulsating energy. For the first two hours of the night, as my darkest ayahuasca trip unfolded, this experience of this third layer and the little doctors pummeling, gatling, and lasering my energetic body was swirling around me and through me, melting parts of my field of vision and proprioception. This part alone was harrowing and overwhelming, but this was just what was happening in my body. Ayahuasca needed me to travel to the darkest part of my psyche. Descent into the dark tree. As the medicine began to set in, I sat at the edge of my bed and felt the entire maloka transform into what I can only describe as the underworld. It felt swamp-like and like I was walking towards a huge dark tree with an opening in it. I felt the spirit of ayahuasca with me, guiding me into the hole and I began to travel down into the roots of this tree. The roots of this tree also felt like the synapses of my brain. I could feel instantly that ayahuasca was guiding me to the darkest, most terrifying part of my psyche. One of Carl Jung's most profound quotes is, no tree can grow to heaven unless its roots reach down to hell. I slowly arrived at the end of my deepest root. The felt sensation of ayahuasca was, are you willing to see and accept if your worst fear is true? I began to cry and finally I said yes. The darkest thought I have ever thought is, what if I've molested someone as a child and I don't remember it? This thought entered my psyche as I studied trauma this past year. It is the most painful thing the type of being I feel I am could imagine, to have created trauma in another and not know it. That would be the hardest pain for me to hold. She had me sit with that question in the visionary space for a couple of moments, and I looked unflinchingly into the pulsating darkness as she searched my psyche. Finally, she showed me that there was nothing here, she told me that I've never done anything like this and that this was a test to see if I was willing to look at the darkest parts of the human experience. I showed her and myself that I was willing. And so she moved to the next closest, darkest thought. What if someone I know was molested in childhood and that I knew about it, but that I repressed knowing? 
Again, for a few eternal moments, I sat looking into the pulsating darkness as she searched my psyche. Again, she showed me that I had never witnessed anything like this and that this doesn't mean that nothing like this happened to people close to me, but that I didn't see it and that I didn't repress it. And now that she knew that I was willing to look at the darkest, scariest parts of the deepest roots of my tree, she spent the next unknowable amount of time showing me how the energy of the monster in my dream that morning has wounded every woman that I know. That monster in my dream, what I'm calling the woman eater, is a fundamental archetypical energy of the human psyche. It is the part of men that fear women, that hate women, that want to dominate, suppress, and hurt women. Ayahuasca showed me how this energy has hurt, wounded, and molded all the women that I've ever been close to. The weight of this has me weeping as I type these words. It was so heavy. She showed me viscerally how when men pour this energy into the body of a woman through sex, through speech, and through their actions, it puts pain and resentment into the woman's body. When sex has this archetypical energy in it, it teaches the body of the woman that she is not safe, that she is not equal, and it fuses pain and fear with her sexual pleasure. She showed me how almost every woman I have ever loved as a son, as a brother, as a friend, and as a lover has experienced this energy in their life, has been hurt by this energy, and has been taught by this energy. She showed me rape, sexual violence, sexual exploitation, and the wake of trauma that emanates from this energy. She showed me how some women seek this energy from men because of childhood wounds, she showed me how when I was younger, when I feared the feminine, that I put this energy into women through sex. She showed me how now the way that I make love has helped mend this energy and some of the women that I am close to. She showed me that this energy can be exchanged consciously between aware and powerful partners and can be a potent medium through which healing, ecstasy, and pleasure can be explored and how almost everyone that I know that claims to exchange the woman-eater energy this way are not actually doing it in a way that heals, that wounding is still happening under pseudo-spirituality. And this all culminated in a crushing case study where ayahuasca brought before me a woman that I have known since high school, who in order to protect her privacy, I won't share the details, but that she is the ultimate representation of how this wounded masculine sexual energy has completely consumed her light. Ayahuasca showed me her face with her lip injections masking a despair-filled frown and how her fake eyelashes framed dead eyes. And it was her eyes that broke me. This woman is a mother. She is in a broken relationship. She has a history of sexual trauma and I see her inner little girl sitting in a cave. She has only been rewarded for her body, for her sexual function, and I could see the antidepressants, the anti-anxiety medications, the alcohol, and the surgeries that all attempt to mask her pain. I cried for her, and I cried for my mother and my sisters and my friends and my lovers. And I cried for the men too, for the men who hate their mothers, fear their sisters, 
resent their lovers, and who do violence to themselves when they are violent to women. I sat at the foot of this truth of human nature as long as ayahuasca asked me to, with my eyes open and my heart breaking. And in the darkness, I see a figure emerge. Teo, the male shaman, was coming to my bed to sing his medicine song. The Mouth of the Anaconda As Teo began to sing to me, as I continued to navigate these difficult visions, as the doctors continued to eviscerate parts of me with interdimensional insectoid laser beams, and as my stomach twisted and turned, I felt something at the edge of my awareness begin to move and constrict. I slowly realized that it felt like my entire being was inside the mouth of an anaconda, and I felt it slowly crushing and constricting me. I felt sensations in my body like I was being possessed, as Teo sang, it felt like his song was reaching into my mouth and into my innards, trying to pull my stomach up and out of my body. I placed my purge bucket in front of me. I felt my ego do its absolute best to stay upright, to keep my awareness alive, and to be frank, to resist purging. With what felt like an eternal moment, and as his song began to end, the constriction slowly released the visions began to settle and my body relaxed as he finished. We each gave each other a little gracias as he slowly moved to the next bed and I sat there stupefied. I felt I had both survived the hardest experience I've ever had on ayahuasca and that I also failed to fully surrender. My body wanted to purge and I did not purge. I knew that this was the wrong choice and that I revealed to me where I am still stuck and that this energy had the opportunity to leave my body and I would not surrender to it. My integration post ayahuasca has shown me that this woman eater energy and the wound that it creates having witnessed it fully is still in me and is being slowly digested each day. But I also felt absolutely fucking elated I did not flinch in looking at some of the hardest feelings and images and thoughts I have ever imagined. And this gave way to my favorite vision of the week. A night of the round table. For the next hour or more, I sat at the edge of my mat, my mouth agape, eyes offering tears in complete awe, staring up into the heavens. The Maloka now felt like the feasting hall of a great castle. I felt like a young king who had just gone on an adventure into the underworld, who had faced demons, and who had also failed, but that it was all part of my larger story, and I felt myself sitting at a grand table, sharing my adventures with other kings that I know and love. I felt myself sitting next to my two major male mentors, Aubrey and Kyle. I was sharing with them my journey in the same way King Arthur loved when one of his knights brought back a great tale. It is hard to explain, but I felt the death of the stag as a totem for my king archetype, and I felt the full birth and coming of age of the lion as the totem of my king. Last year felt like the coronation of my inner king, and this night felt like the completion of that king's first real adventure. I basked in the gratitude of knowing that I have mentors and peers who want my stories and who share theirs with me. 
I felt love and admiration for myself that I was willing to look at the darkest part of my psyche and I was also humbled that I failed to fully surrender and that I knew that there was a tremendous amount of room to grow still. Indra's Net As the awe subsided, I began to process what I'd gone through. There was a moment in the depths of the experience where I felt like I was touching one of the most painful aspects of the human condition. As I felt this, I had the vision of Indra's net and how each node represented a type of experience a human could feel. And some part of me knew that as an essential fragment of eternity, my consciousness has known and will know again every possible human experience and that this is a part of our nature to do so and that I had visited one of those nodes tonight. I also connected deeply to an aspect of my dharma I know that I will dance with plant medicines for the rest of my life. I know an aspect of my dance is to be able to hold space for every type of human experience. And a part of my intuition is that I will have to, in this lifetime, travel to many of the most terrifying nodes of Indra's net as a part of my dharma. This realization felt like the salve to the little boy who cried the day before, who feels guilty about how good and how easy his life has been. Because I have not incurred fracturing childhood trauma to the extent of my current awareness, I have the gift of being able to feel fully and not disassociate from the emotions that arise in response to events like what I experienced tonight. I feel fully and a part of my dharma seems to be to traverse aspects of Indra's net like the one I explored tonight and to feel the truth of them fully. And this brings a poetic settling to that guilty little boy. Don't worry, little one. You may not have experienced severe childhood trauma, but your path is one where you will voluntarily explore and know and feel many different types of trauma. After the ceremony closed, I laid in my bed in the dark maloka for over an hour, slowly drinking in and processing the experience I had lived, and I asked Ayahuasca, Why did you have me look at so much female trauma? And her answer, You have to look at this for your daughter. And I wept and wept and wept into the mattress. I knew, and I know, My daughter will have to navigate this woman-eater energy in the collective that hates women, that fears women, that seeks to hurt women. She will likely experience it in some form. And in order to be the father to her that I aspire to be, I will have to be able to look at this energy with her and for her. As I gave my tears to my mattress and to Grandmother Ayahuasca, I told myself, Tonight was for my daughter. Night four, ayahuasca tucks me in. I slept three hours after my third night with ayahuasca, and the next day was a haze. I was in shock. I barely spoke. I felt like I was sleepwalking. I couldn't comprehend that I had to drink another night. Somehow, before I knew it, it was nighttime again and I was back in the maloka, sitting before the facilitators, about to drink my last cup of ayahuasca. My intention for the last night was, please show me what is for me, 
this year, and for the coming decade. Someone had shared earlier that day that their third night with ayahuasca was a full night of her showing him his future as a musician. She showed him exactly what he needed to do for the next few years to manifest his dharma. She showed him his artist's name, his logo, what type of instruments to use, what type of songs to create, and the vision of him on stage in front of thousands of people singing his songs. And if I'm honest, I wanted that. That was the kind of night that I was hoping for all week. And as I put the cup to my lips, I felt my body shudder. Have you ever seen the way a wounded animal cowers right before it is about to be hit again? This is what my poor body felt like. I could feel how afraid it was and how tired it was and how it was still clearly trying to recover from last night. I drank anyways. And the moment I did, I felt my body try to throw it up. And this was not the medicine working. This was my body fearing. I went back to my bed and I used all the power that I'd left to settle my little fearful animal. As I sat in the darkness, I slowly began to feel ayahuasca grow into my awareness and something beautiful happened. I knew instantly that tonight was going to be peaceful and calm, regenerative and loving. So I asked for a second cup, and after I did, I felt Grandmother Ayahuasca tell me to lay down and to put my blanket on and to just receive. The first three nights that I sat at the edge of my bed, I felt like a warrior king trying to face death. Tonight I felt like a little boy who was going to bed. As I laid, I felt the little doctors gently, like a calm oceanic tide, massage my being. Like the lapping of a dog's tongue, the caress of a mother's hand, or the breath of a lover, I felt ayahuasca pulse love into me. I saw no visions. I thought no thoughts. I simply was, in the darkness of that Costa Rican jungle. Eventually, at some point, I wondered why I wasn't seeing any visions of my future the way the musician had, and the only direct message of ayahuasca on night four came to me. Why God Chooses to Walk. There's a beautiful Terence McKenna lecture where he explores a thought experiment. If you were a being of complete power and you could manifest anything at any moment and you could teleport anywhere at any moment, what would be the most beautiful and luxurious activity in all of existence that you could do? His answer, you would walk somewhere inside of a human body. The most delicious treat you as a god could choose would be to bind yourself in time and space and to walk. You would walk. You would slowly, poetically take in the majesty of the three-dimensional reality. You'd savor the smell of the trees on the air, the sound of bees pollinating fields of flowers, and feel in your body the rhythm of the ocean kissing the shore. If you were a god, the ultimate pleasure would be to walk. And I felt myself peacefully realize, I don't want to know the future of my dharma. I want to walk it. And that felt like the grand final sentence on my journey this year. I came with the intention to know my dharma more fully. And I am leaving knowing 
I don't want my dharma revealed to me. I want to create it. I want to walk it. I want to dance it moment by moment. Thank you, ayahuasca. As I sit here, finishing this trip report, the only thought that comes to mind is, the meaning of an experience comes from what you do after. The life I create this year will define what this experience meant to me. All it can be at this moment is a story. Thank you for hearing my story. Thank you for seeing me. I hope the killing of the sacred deer has fed you. I love you.